Welcome to the IWIB Female Factor Podcast. For the month of March, we are celebrating the history of women during this month. And for that, we have remarkable guests that will share their stories and will share their wisdom with us. So welcome everyone to listening in. Welcome everyone to the IWAB Talks and Podcast. Uh, we'll be discussing mental health in young women today. And for that, we have a guest, um, a young lawyer uh, from um, Wales in, in England, Esild uh, Martin. She's originally from Wales and is currently working in London as a solicitor, specializing in both immigration and employment law. Um, um, she will be speaking candidly about her highs and lows uh, and how important it is to seek help before it's too late. And Essie is a, an advocate for mental health within her firm. And she has given similar talks to colleagues in the hopes that it will help those in similar situations. With uh, Essie, we end our series of highlighting remarkable and inspiring women under the Women's History Month. Essie, welcome to the IWIB Talks and Podcast. Thank you, Tati, and, and thank you for including me in the Remarkable Women. It's, nice, it's a nice title. Um, um, but yeah, thank you so much for having me on today. Um, and it, it really is something that's important to me to speak about. Um, so as Tati said, I, I work for Evershed Sutherland in the UK, and they really do um, do fantastic work in encouraging their employees to be open and honest about their mental health. So that's kind of where I've, I've come into speaking about it. Um, so I, it was for World Mental Health Day in November of last year. I wrote a blog about my experiences of having used the sort of employee assistance program. Um, and then I was invited to speak in front of 100 plus of my colleagues about my experiences, which was <laughs> very nerve wracking. Um, and then Tati's kindly invited me um, on to speak today uh, about mental health. Um, and it's not something that um, comes easily or naturally to me um, for reasons that I'll go into shortly. Um, but it's something I feel really strongly about. And every time I do speak, um, it does become a little bit easier to do so. Um, so I'll just sort of tell you a little bit about myself um, and my sort of childhood to begin with. Um, so when I was nine years old, I answered a telephone call from the British Transport Police. And it was to tell us that my elder brother had taken his own life. Um, and in that moment, our whole lives changed irrevocably. Um, as a child, I was, I was so young, my sort of first instinct was to go and run away and find a, a picture of him to hold on to. Um, but my mum saw me and she told me to put it away. And that was my sort of first experiences of the way that my family dealt with grief. Um, so it's their just sort of their defense mechanism is to shut down, to never mention his name again, um, to not look at pictures of him, to not discuss our feelings about what had happened. Um, and that is sort of sadly to this day that they, they still don't really accept or acknowledge mental illness, which can seem strange considering what's happened to us. Um, and that's not to say that I didn't grow up in a loving household. I absolutely did. And I've got every respect for my mum for raising us as she did alone. Um, but growing up in that environment taught me very much to internalise 
pain and fear um and it's for that reason that it's 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 still very difficult to talk about it today um a year ago even i wouldn't have been able to say my brother's name um without just just closing up completely um but his name is kieran and every time i say his name um it does become a little bit easier to speak about it and a little bit easier to remember all of the beautiful memories that i have of him um, so for all of those reasons, it took me a very long time to come to terms with my own mental health issues. Um, and it, for the reasons I just went through, it's something that I had to go through alone. Um, so it sort of came to a, I think it was, it was bubbling under the surface from probably that, that point, but it sort of came to a head after I left university. Uh, I moved home for a year before I ultimately decided to, to proceed with my legal career. Um, and I sort of hit rock bottom and I kind of got to a point where I couldn't even get out of bed for a couple of weeks and I didn't know why. Um, I would cry every time before I or after I saw friends um, because I was just so anxious that they hated me or that I'd said something wrong or that I was speaking too much and I just would play over everything I'd done in the last hour or so. Um, I went to the doctors thinking that I was anemic um, and I left with antidepressants. <laughs> so I'd never identified in that moment before as being depressed. Um, and of course, I, I associated depression with something very extreme and what happened to my brother. So I didn't really appreciate that there was different levels. Um, but, but within a month of sort of taking that medication, I was a completely different person and I didn't recognize myself. Um, so I, I, I continued taking them for about two to three years um, and it did enable me to go back to university and I did the legal practice course and sort of kick-started my career at that point. Um, so if I just sort of discuss my career a little bit and how that's interplayed. Um, so as a working single mother, my mum had always instilled into me a very strong work ethic, um, but alongside that, a total mistrust of everybody. Um, and I understood from a really young age that I needed my own career and independence because I couldn't rely on anyone, particularly men, to provide for me. Um, so I had to sort out my career in law, um, but it didn't exactly happen the way I'd imagined. I was, as many lawyers will have experienced, I was rejected time after time for the sort of training contract that I needed to qualify as a solicitor. Um, I did, however, secure my paralegal position at Evershed Sutherland in the Cardiff office uh, in Wales. Um, and during the next three years, I found a firm, I found an area of law and I fell in love with it. Um, so much so that when I was actually offered the training contract somewhere else, I turned it down um, and chose to take a risk on myself and on the firm. So I'd also, I'd done some digging at the same time to try and find a sort of alternative route to the training contract. And I found something and managed to persuade the partners in the team to help me progress down that route. So I think I sent an email around with sort of the subject line, possible ways to keep Essie forever. <laughs> and um, it, it worked, <laughs> weirdly enough. Um, but I still didn't have the, the job offer of a train, uh, an associate solicitor at the end of it. So I was progressing down the route, but with no job offer at the end. And there were so many times that I felt close to giving up. Um, and I just felt like there was there was no positive outcome at the end of it. And by this point, I had persuaded myself to come off the antidepressants. Um, so I, I was sort of on my own in that respect. And I was I was trying to 
keep positive. Um, I took another sort of risk in 2019 and asked if I could work in the London office over the summer just for some different experiences, different team. And at the end of those six weeks, the partners turned around to me and said, if it's a newly qualified position you're after, we will give it to you and you can stay here with us. And it was arguably the, the biggest highlight of my career so far. And it was totally unexpected and so brilliant. Um, and I'd finally achieved exactly what I'd been working towards for, you know, over eight years. Um, so it was at that point that I, I thought to myself, okay, this is brilliant, but why do I feel so empty? Um, and why am I slipping back into some of the behaviors that I recognized from my time following university? Um, so for example, I became absolutely terrified of socializing. I couldn't bring myself to even try and organize anything with anyone because I was convinced that they would reject my offer. I wholeheartedly believed I didn't have any friends, even though I, I, I do and I, they're there. And I just, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't explain to you why I, I had those feelings. I was constantly second guessing my actions, both outside of work and within work and the sort of intentions of those within me, uh, around me. Um, and ultimately I sort of found myself walking down the streets of London with, with tears running down my, my face. Um, and at that point I, I realized that I'd lost myself. I'd lost my identity. I'd lost my country. I, I wasn't in Wales anymore. I couldn't speak my language. Um, and I'd, I'd lost my, personality completely I, I felt like I was I was just so boring and I'd lost my my funny so I had spotted the signs fortunately and I, I did take myself back off to the doctors and I left again with the antidepressants um, which I'm still taking but I knew I knew they would work but I also knew that I didn't just want to mask the pain this time I wanted to get to the root of it um, so I sort of embarked on a, a year's worth of counselling, which of course, because of coronavirus turned into sort of virtual counselling, but it, it worked brilliantly. Um, it, it felt so wrong initially because of the way I'd been brought up, but she was absolutely incredible. Um, she helped me to realise that whilst everything on paper might have been great, uh, it doesn't mean that you don't have a reason to be, to be depressed. So I'm sure lots of you that might be in similar positions can relate to the feeling of being an imposter. Um, I felt like that going to counselling because I had a great life, I had a great job, great boyfriend, I had great friends, and I didn't really have anything to complain about. And all I could hear was sort of when I'd first told my mum that I was on antidepressants in the first time around, all I could hear was her saying, what have you got to be depressed about? You don't have anything to be depressed about. Why are you depressed? Um, and I think as, as lawyers and women in other professions, all we want to do is to appear strong and resilient at all times. But it's important to recognize that you don't really know what's happening below the surface with people. Um, but the counselor sort of, by taking my year in my life in sort of five year increments each week, I could easily sort of track the highs and lows, which had made me who I was and had sort of produce these deep-seated impressions that I had of myself that needed to be readjusted. Um, and it does sound really, really cheesy, but I did get to an epiphany um, almost by the end that just as after, you know, you've done a project that you've been absolutely in, in, you know, you lived and breathed it for a couple of weeks and 
you get to the end of it and you finally have a downtime that you can breathe and relax that you know sod's law you'll get a cold or you'll fall ill it's the same so after a particularly hard period of, of your life where you've been working towards a goal really striving towards it, you finally achieve it that that can be where mental illness will appear again for no rhyme or reason um and that's what happened to me um so my hope is that by being open and honest about my mental health and encouraging others to do so that we'll one day get to a point where it will become so normalized in society that our kids will turn around to us and say I'm, I've, I'm not feeling mentally well today I'm feeling mental illness just in the same way that they could turn around and say I've got a stomach ache or I've got a headache um, and hopefully they wouldn't use it as a, just a way to get out of school um, or if a colleague was off ill with mental illness that we wouldn't be afraid to ask them how they are um, we wouldn't be afraid to send them a card saying get well soon we just treat it as any other any other illness um so my, my brother was only 17 when he took his life i still don't know why he did it nobody talks about it so i, I don't know any of the reasons um but all i wish is that he would have had the same opportunity to talk like i am today and that maybe things would have been different um, but yeah, thank you for listening to my Oh story. gosh, Asni. Thank you so much for sharing your story. And I think this this helps many people, those that are that will be listening to this uh, talks and podcast, and as well as those going through, you know, um, mental health issues. Um, now we will proceed with the questions. I'm going to pause right now. Um Thank you for answering the questions, Essie. So now moving on into a more positive note. Um, what's in the future for you? What is it that, um, how do you see yourself, for example, in five years? Is there any place that you would like to experience or live or take a sabbatical? Uh, what will be that country? Can you please tell me how you see yourself in the future? I'm obviously at the very start of my career. Um, I only qualified last year, so I've, I've got so much ahead of me. Um, and obviously without trying to sound naive and like every sort of junior lawyer, I would absolutely love to progress up the ladder and join the ranks of the, the amazing women partners that we have at Evershed Sutherland. And that's obviously what every junior lawyer says. Um, but just by being on this, on this call um, and this podcast with so many amazing women that have had international careers, and you, Tati, you know, you've worked in so many different countries and had so many different experiences. It's reminding me that there is another world out there. I think it's so easy to forget with coronavirus that there are other countries and other opportunities. Um, and I, I would love for my career to take me somewhere else in the world um, and to be able to, to work elsewhere. You could come to Stockholm. I know the Evershed Sutherland law firm, they have, uh, you know, exchanges. So they, you know, we had uh, lawyers from the UK office. So please. Uh, yeah, I mean, who knows? I hope, I hope Brexit doesn't stop that. <laughs> oh, you're right. Yeah. We got, we got so far through this call without saying the B world, but there it is. And I am an immigration lawyer. So <laughs> it's you know better than anybody else. Yes. Yeah. But absolutely, if if a, if a door opens, I will run through it. Um, it's something I've always done outside of my career. I've always traveled. I think since I was 21, every single year I've done a trip on my own. Mm -hmm. um, so I've been to places like Central America, 
Bali, other places in Europe, the Caribbean, Morocco, all of those places on my own. And it's something um, that I'm so passionate about and I love it. Um, and everyone says to me, how could you go to those places on your own? Do, do you not get scared or is it boring? Um, but I absolutely love it. And I've got a wonderful, I've got a wonderful group of friends. I've got a wonderful partner, but I think it's so important for me to be able to continue going to these places alone and adventuring on my own, particularly with my, <clears throat> with my mental health, to be able to feel comfortable in my own thoughts um, and to feel confident enough to do that. So that's something that I want to continue. So obviously- Do you think it, that you are so daring uh, precisely because you had this in the back of your head that you need to live life to the fullest? I will never go to Central America by myself. And I'm <laughs> Colombian. I am Colombian. <laughs> I will not dare to do that. That's a very risky thing to do, traveling by yourself. Yeah. You think because of that, what do you think that makes you be so daring? I, I I miss something in myself that something is missing from inside of me where I have that fear and I don't think it's it's necessarily a good thing but um yeah I, I always knew that I had to take care of myself and I think it goes back to the way that my mum raised me and that I knew that I couldn't rely on anybody to make my life better or to make my life a, a good a life an exciting life um, so I think when my friends started to get into relationships when they were younger and they, they weren't willing to go on holiday with me and I, I just, I did it on my own. I, I said, well, fine, if no one's going to go with me, I'm not going to go unless I go on my own. So do it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, what, what, what would be, when, when you're working now with immigration law, um, have you have you found your your this is your career path is this what you really want to do why 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 immigration law because to me that's a very heavy hearted topic you know or is it immigration uh towards investments or is it immigration towards asylum seekers what kind of immigration do you do so i did not go through university expecting to end up in immigration law it's not something that i I ever aspired to be. Um, it's just something that I found myself in. Um, and I, also, I I got the call from Evershed saying that there's a, there's a job opening, which we think we'd be good for. Um, and it involves a little bit of travel. And I said, yeah, great, let's do it. <laughs> and, and I ended up spending 90% of my time on the road, going around the UK, helping organizations with their immigration compliance. So I do focus, um, obviously Evershed's being a, a commercial law firm, I do focus on providing support for organizations and institutions rather than individuals um, and asylum yeah. etc right. so we do do more of the student slash business type immigration um, but it is it's my niche and it's, it's where I found my ability to feel confident in my area of law so I could take over this podcast and speak about immigration law for about three hours if I, if I wanted to. Um, but I have yeah, your own podcast about immigration. I, I do. I do have my own immigration podcast. Oh my gosh. Then I didn't do my research well because I thought, I, I thought that you had, but then I thought, no, maybe it's the podcast from Evershed's. Or yeah, I, so I it's, it's done. It. It's done via the Evershed channel. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, oh, okay. it's a very niche subject. So you, <laughs> I'm not sure that everyone would find it as interesting as I do. Mm, okay. 
Well, but then, you know, I, I think you, you, you chose the right side of immigration law because I had a friend that works with immigration in the U.S. and she's depressed, like it's so depressing. I mean, just seeing the, the latest news in the border, it's just heartbreaking, um, but no, it's too complex. So moving on, um, this podcast is the Female Factor podcast. Uh, what have been the women in your life that had made a positive impact and why? Well, I think I've, I've obviously spoken a lot about my mum during the earlier part of the podcast. And I, I've, you know, I've said about not being able to, to talk about my feelings, etc. But I think that would be doing her to, um, obviously a disservice. She's a fantastic woman and has always, always pushed me to be the best version of myself and the most successful version of myself. Um, but I think it's a bit cheesy to say that your mum is your inspiration. Um, and obviously, I'm surrounded by women in, in the North <laughs> that are, are so... I said they mine too, so... <laughs> they're so incredible. And they are so dedicated to their work. <laughs> and they're seen as experts in their fields. But they also manage these hectic home lives and their, their families and their children. And I think that the way that they demand respect without sacrifice is something that I aspire to. And I guess from a personal perspective, um, and obviously not not to take a, a sad downturn, but my, for the, and not to sound too cheesy, but one of my closest friends, uh, Zara, is probably the person that inspires me the most in life. Um, I've been lucky enough to have her my, as my friend since I was 11. And she's honestly just one of those people, one of those women that just glows and they have that attitude towards life that is so addictive and that makes everybody want to be around them um when we were in university she lost her father to cancer um and she went on to absolutely do amazing in her degree she built her career in human resources and actually at the start of this year she herself has been diagnosed with breast cancer and she's gone on to have a mastectomy and she started chemotherapy in such a short amount of time and every time I speak to her, I'm just so blown away about how she deals with trauma and how she deals with difficult situations. She's so, so strong um, and talks so openly about her pain and her fears. And coming from my background where everything like that gets so pushed down, it's so amazing for me to see. And it's, it's the way I aspire to be able to deal with things is that, is that how she deals with things um yeah and I, I obviously hope that she goes on to make a full recovery and can continue to just be the beautiful person that she is I, I you know I completely relate to what you're saying uh, one of my best friends she's my son's uh, godmother uh, she had been through cancer not once but twice but twice and um she lost her parents when she was uh, 15 and 18 uh, she's my law school uh, classmate and now you know very good friend of mine Every time I complain about something, I go back to her. Yeah. And it inspires me and it gives me strength. A perspective as well. Right? Yes. It's amazing. Yeah. So uh, thank you for sharing that. And now going uh, to the end of the episode today, what is the, uh, unless you want to add something, um, what will be the message? What will be the takeaway for those listening? I just... I know going back to the beginning and this podcast is about inspiring and remarkable women and listening to some of the other speakers on it I'm just so blown away by 
the fact that I'm sitting alongside them because I'm, I'm definitely not in the same league as them. But I just hope that people listening will think actually that, you know, this is just someone who has a, a, an ordinary life, ordinary problems. I, I by no means have been through the worst. I by no means uh, uh, am anything special in terms of my journey with mental health. And everyone has been through something similar or everyone has their own story to tell in, in respect of their difficulties. Um, but I just think if, if my brother had had access to the same kind of support that I've had access to, um, my family would have had a very different life. Um, and I'm, I'm not remarkable in any sense. So I hope that people listening will be able to identify and think, actually, I, I don't need to be, I don't need to have had something truly terrible happen in my life to go and seek help or you won't, you know, the counsellor's not going to say to you, why are you doing here? You don't have anything wrong with you. Please leave. So I just hope that it will take away some of that stigma. It will give people the confidence to go along and to seek help before it's too late. And just to emphasize that you, you really don't need a reason to be depressed. Essie Martin, thank you so much for being with the IWIB Human Factor Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. I hope you find the episode interesting. For more information, you can read the descriptions of this episode. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram, IWIB underscore business network or at www.iwib.online. Until next time. Bye-bye.